Good morning. It's wonderful to be together. I was kind of looking out over the congregation in early service and this service too. And, I, you know, the holiday weekends are a lot of fun. They kind of break up the routine, but they also bring in a lot of out-of-town faces, and we get to spend some time with family, and that's wonderful. So if you're visiting with us today, we're especially thankful that you're here. We hope you are uplifted and edified by our time together. We're in our second week of a series called Therefore, where we are kind of looking at some of the arguments made in Scripture, and I hope through this we can kind of connect some of the things we do with, with the why, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 today, so I would love for you all to open your devices, your Bibles, whatever it is, to Matthew chapter 7, right back to the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we started out last week, and we're going to spend some more time uh, today looking at Jesus' words. While you're turning there, I want to ask a question. I, I realize this is probably not one that, uh, that maybe is going to catch a, an enormous amount of you, but I wonder if any of you have ever had a really, really good idea. Well, there's more, because I know a lot of you have had good ideas. I wonder if any of you have ever had a really, really good idea, and you've thought, maybe I should patent that. You know, I seem to have million-dollar ideas all the time, and then my wife would tell me that maybe they weren't so great as I thought that they were. But there's been a few over the years that I thought were maybe just good enough that maybe that deserved a patent. And so I found myself a couple times on the U.S. Patent Office's website. If anyone's ever been there, you learn pretty quickly that the process of trying to get a patent on something is, um, it, it's open to everyone, but it's really pretty difficult. And then you open up the actual patents and you start reading the things that people have, have gotten protected under patent law, and it's actually pretty interesting. It seems like a lot of times the, the big ideas, these really cool things that you think, all right, that is patent worthy. Well, that's an idea that someone had a long time ago. And all of these companies that are claiming patent on things, it's some little peripheral thing like the way that they hinged the lid on their device or something like that. It has nothing to do with the actual, with the actual thing. It's, it's actually pretty interesting. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, here's, here's the deal. Just like there's not a whole lot of new good ideas floating out there for patents, I don't know that there's a whole lot of new good ideas for preachers. So I guess maybe I'm trying to justify this plagiarizing that us preachers do every single week when we get up in front of all of y'all. And what we have to do is kind of tricky, like these people trying to get patents. We gather up all this stuff, these ideas that people have already had, and we try to spin it just new enough that it counts, you know? And that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. Now, as I look through Scripture, I, my, my conscience is eased a little bit because here in Matthew chapter 7, I actually think Jesus did it too. Now, I want to read it, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and you can develop your own opinion. It says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. What do we call this? See, they, they, Greg let you cheat. He put it up before you answered. The golden rule, but, but you all knew that. The golden rule is something that we're all super familiar with, and the truth is, Jesus didn't come up with it. It was not first introduced here. We often think that it was. We think the golden rule came from Jesus, but we see it in a lot of different cultures over a lot of different times. It's actually much older than Jesus. We see it in other world religions like Zoroastrianism and Confucianism. We find it in Buddhist literature. It's in ancient Indian literature and different forms. 
We find it in a lot of Greek literature, and we even find it in the teacher, Jewish literature that, that was before Jesus' time. So this is a, a teaching that Jesus and those around him would have been familiar with. It's been taught to a lot of people over the years. It's not new. It wasn't new 2,000 years ago. It had existed since ancient times, because there's something about it that just seems to transcend time and culture. Now, I think that that's a clue that it's from God. You know, if we find something like this that is, that is so prevalent, um, then it shouldn't surprise us for Jesus to step in and, and confirm um, this reality, because if it was from God, I, I mean, obvious to creation, then it probably did come from the Creator. You know, I even look into the world that we live in today, this world that tries to figure out how to live without religion, and I feel like one of the things that they exert an enormous amount of effort on is trying to figure out how to make this golden rule apply without a God. Because at their core, they know that this ability to empathize, this, this way that we interact with those around us matters a lot. And this is actually a really good guiding principle to help us land in a healthy place. This rule is everywhere, and it wasn't unique to Jesus. Now, what do you think is the most important element of the golden rule? Or maybe I should say the most important element here in verse 12. I actually think here in Scripture, more important than the core of the golden rule is that tiny first little word at the beginning, so. Now, in all fairness, I'm doing a series called Therefore, so it's probably a little unfair of me to, partic- uh, to pick a verse that says so. In fact, in some of your translations, there's not even a connecting word translated there. It just moves straight into the golden rule. I think that's because we're so enamored by it that we kind of skip over some of this. I promise you in the Greek, there is a word there. It is un, and the word un is what is translated into so. In other locations, it's translated into therefore. That word, that connecting word matters because Jesus chose it deliberately. You see that tiny little word that he places before this this kind of common piece of, of street wisdom, that tiny little word before roots it in profound truth. And it makes this something that we need to spend some time with. You know, this is not just a bumper sticker saying. What do I mean by that? We see bumper stickers all the time, and what's the purpose of bumper stickers? Well, sometimes it's because if someone's close enough to read the bumper sticker, then we have something not nice to say to them, so we stick that on our bumper. But other times, it's, it's, it's some little one-liner, some little saying that we can throw out there that, that means something to us, and we hope that, something w- that will give people something to think about. And oftentimes, we treat things like the golden rule, maybe specifically the golden rule, as if it's a bumper sticker saying. So we put it on stickers, and we put it on our desk calendars, and we put it on little pictures that hang on our wall. And the truth is, it's a powerful statement. But it's a part of an argument that Jesus was formulating. This wasn't just a one-liner that he was throwing out for us to grab onto. He He was building an argument, building a case for a certain way of living and a certain way of thinking. And this verse, verse 12, serves to make a huge and important point. You see, there at the beginning, he used this connecting word, so. 
And that connects his teachings like intimately with the passage that immediately precedes it. And I think, in a sense, all of the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end, he uses this other word, for. For this is the law um, and the, the prophets. And through this for, he kind of sets this, this golden rule up as a, a sort of summary, a bookend for this central core teaching portion of his Sermon on the Mount. So, this verse 12 is actually a really big deal. It's a concise summary of Jesus' teachings. It roots all of his teachings internally with you in this powerful way so that you can relate to them. And it's linked to this particular understanding of God and how he interacts with you as his followers and as believers. So we're going to spend some time unpacking it this morning. We're going to start with the, the tail end. We're going to look at the for statement first. For this is the law and the prophets. And we'll circle back to the so or the therefore here in just a little bit. The for this is the law and the prophets is a powerful thing for Jesus to add. Most scholars would agree that when Jesus referred to the law and the prophets, what he was really talking about, that was his way of saying all of Scripture all of the Old Testament, which they had at that time, it would have been the same 39 books that we have in our Old Testament that you look at today. Those are the words that he was referring to when he talks about the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying the equivalent of, of all of the Bible, all of the words that God has shared with his creation hinge on this. That's a pretty big statement for Jesus to make. What is interesting, however, is that he also began his teaching portion, the core of his sermon, with a very similar type of reference. If you backed up to Matthew chapter 5, in verse 17, you would have seen that he already went through the Beatitudes. He talked about us being salt and light, where we get the this little light of mine that we'll sing tonight at Pew Packers. But then here, right before he jumps into like these these powerful teachings where he challenges them in the way that they're going to live and interact with the world, right before he gets to that, he pauses here in verse 17, and he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven of heaven. So Jesus had kind of spooled up his teaching. He'd kind of whetted their appetite at the beginning. And then he gets to this verse and it's like, okay, you need to know something. You need to know something. We're, I'm not coming to, to undo any of the things that have been written. It all stands. Every piece of it stands. In fact, what I'm about to do is paint a picture of what it has always stood for. All of the law and the prophets, all of God's revelation, all of Scripture, all of those 39 books that you hold and read and love and, and, and breathe, all of those, this is what God was talking about. And then he gets to the center of a sermon and he challenges them. He says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, in saying that, he's painting this picture of this life that 
God wants them to live a life that's pleasing to him. And, and really what he's saying is that you've missed the point. You've missed the core. You've missed the core reason for all of Scripture, the law and the prophets. You've missed the heart of who God is. And he goes on to discuss this heart behind so many of the issues that we as humans face. So he talks about anger and lust and divorce and what we're supposed to do when we make oaths or promises and what it looks like to retaliate when we've been wrong, how we're supposed to love our enemies, what it looks like to be benevolent and and care for others. He talks about prayer and fasting and materialism and anxiety and the judgment that we pass on other people. And then as he wraps up this these powerful teachings on on really Christian ethics is what I'll call it, like how you're supposed to live in the world, then he tells a short parable, and he gives this summary in 7.12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So you see, he began this challenging teaching by establishing the authority of God's word, and then he expounds on the core purposes And then in true preacher fashion, he gives this like easy to take home summary and he places this other little bow, this little bookend at the end and says, for this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what it's all about, Jesus is saying. He's taking this concept of of scripture and he uses it as bookends on each side of these teachings that he knew was going to challenge them and going to push them. And I think that it challenges and pushes pushes you as well. And he says, this is what it's always been about. There's, There's nothing new here. God has always had the same design and purpose for his people. This is what it's all about. All of the law and prophets. You need to understand that. Now, in light of Jesus' use there, you could argue that the so, or the therefore at the beginning of verse 12, is kind of like Jesus saying, so in summary. In other words, now that we're to the end, in summary, treat others like you want to be treated. This is all of the law and the prophets. And there are a lot of scholars who think that um, and, and write about how this verse refers to everything backwards. And, and I think in a sense it does, but, but that's because of the, the for statement, the way that he roots it in Scripture. The so statement, when I look at it and I read very closely, and you can disagree with me, but I don't think you will once we're done, I believe that that takes us back directly to verses 7 through 11. This so statement connects to those in a way that that changes this from an in summary to a because of blank, because of what you read in verses 7 through 11, you should do for others what you wish they would do to you. Let's read it. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
Anyone here a good gift giver? I, I would guess that there's a few of you out there. I was, we were laughing in early service. That's where my, my sister, my brother and sister-in-law go to early service. Her name is Lana. And I always feel sorry for Lana during any sort of gift giving season. Because the, the poor thing is, is a gift giver to the core, and she's really good at it. And she married into this family of terrible gift givers. I mean, we're awful. I'm the, one that, I'm the one that shows up to, like, one of these white elephant gift exchanges, and I always misunderstand the rules. And I think, like, oh, this is one of those funny things. So I find, like, used batteries and a box of Kleenexes and bring it from the house five minutes before. And then you show up, and what are they passing around? Like, these art projects that people spent two weeks creating— and it's always like the best one, I end up with the best gift, and the person who brought the best gift ends up with my piece of trash from the house. That's the type of gift giver that I am. And so I'm, I'm not that great of it. Beware if you're ever in a white elephant gift exchange with any of the dozers. You set your expectations really low, okay? What, what is it that, that makes someone a good gift giver? I think it requires an understanding of, of several different things. I mean, you have to be able to look at the situation and rightly discern what's appropriate for the situation. So if you uh, maybe purchased your wife a vacuum for Mother's Day, men, that's not cool, and you shouldn't have done that, all right? You, you, that was bad gift giving. Or, or you also need to know the person and, and their desires and their interests. So maybe this is true for some of you, but um, for most of you, it's not. If, if you give fo season football tickets to your wife, men, probably not the best choice you probably may, maybe for a few of you but most of you misread the desires and interests of your spouse or we also have to have a, a discernment of the needs um, what exactly you're trying to provide so if you are giving someone the same sweater that you gave them last year for their birthday that's in the middle of august you've probably missed the point a little bit y'all see what I'm, I'm talking about here there some discernment required some connection required for us to be able to be a good gift giver we have to understand the situation and the person and the needs and a good gift giver matches their gifts to that in a sense i think the concept of a gift probably makes our mind go somewhere that this passage wasn't meant to take us but here are the similarities a gift is not earned it's given and giving good gifts requires knowledge of the needs and the impact of the gift. Jesus lays out this short little parable, and he's basically telling us, hey, look, God gives undeserved, unearned gifts, and he does so knowing exactly what we need and exactly how those gifts are going to impact us. If your son asks for bread, you wouldn't give him a rock, Jesus says. Why? Because, because a rock wouldn't do any good. He's trying to fill his stomach. You wouldn't hand him a, a rock for that. You know better. You understand his needs and what that's going to do for him. And, and let me just up the ante a little bit more. If he asks for a fish, I mean, you may be evil, but you wouldn't give him a serpent. I mean, your son's hungry, and he wants something that's going to nourish him. You're not going to hand him something that's when he picks it up, is, is going to bite him and attack him and harm him. God knows what you need, and God knows why you are asking, and he would never give you something that will destroy you when you are asking and expecting and needing something nourishing. Now, I know we're surrounded by a lot of people that have probably been dealt difficult hands in life. 
And it could be easy to argue with this based on personal experiences. Um, that maybe it doesn't always feel this way. I think that's probably where the gift analogy starts to break down and makes us go a little bit off track. You see, we aren't just talking about being given things we want and enjoy. We're talking about being given the things that we need. We're talking a, a Romans 8.28 type of relationship with God where all the things that we're given are, are working for good, even if we can't see it in the moment. Now, you may have noticed already, but there's a lot of similarities between this passage and the passage that we studied last week. Last week, we were in verse chapter 6, and we talked about how God um, provides for the birds, and he, he clothes the grasses of the field with all of this splendor. And, and we made this argument that God is faithful in providing to these lesser things. What makes you think that he wouldn't be faithful in providing to you? And God's provision here seems to be, be the undertone. And we seem to be dealing with these kind of tangible, physical needs. But, but last week, last week we discussed how when we place our trust in God, it helps relieve our anxiety because our anxiety comes from, from trying to find stability in things that are inherently unstable. Our anxiety comes from, from trying to trust in something that's not God. When, when really, if we observe the evidence, the fact is this, we have an all-powerful God with an outstanding track record, and he's sitting there saying, I'm going to take care of things. Don't you see the ways that I've interacted in the world? That's what we studied last week. This week, Jesus takes the same idea and the same concept of, of God's provision and him knowing what you need and providing it for you, and he takes it a step further, I believe. He starts with the same basic core argument, God's ability and willingness to provide, and then he adds, so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Now, I want to read those two verses together. If you then, who are evil... Verse 11, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. God is going to give you good gifts. They're undeserved and given by God with a complete understanding of what you need and how they will impact you. Therefore, because of this, in light of this, because of how you see God interacting with creation and with you, you are free to treat others like you want to be treated. Now, your brain's probably spinning a little bit, and I think you're probably all thinking along with me, does that really connect? Is he, he's kind of stretching a little bit, isn't he? I mean, does it really follow in that fashion? Are these really linked? And I, I want us to pause for just a second and think about it, because I think they are. What keeps us, what keeps us from treating others like we want to be treated? I've really asked myself this a lot this week, trying to, trying to discern what, what is it? I mean, we can certainly still treat others well without um, necessarily reaching this standard. I think a lot of us treat others well, but I wonder, are we genuinely going all the way and treating others like we would want to be treated. You know, when it comes to material things, I think our tendency is only to give out of our excess. In other words, the first thing that we do is we are sure that we are taken care of, and once we're sure that we're taken care of first, then we're willing to be super generous. 
think it works in the emotional stage as well. We think about our willingness to give out love. Well, we're willing to give out love, but first we want to be sure that they're going to love us in return. Because it's risky if they don't. In fact, I think at our core, we're all terrified of being taken advantage of. I think it's really scary to treat other people like we want to be treated because that means that we're going to have to extend grace to someone and there's a reasonable chance that they may abuse that grace and hurt us. That they may take something that we might wish that we later had or maybe even worse later need. We're terrified of giving someone something and at the end of the day it coming back and costing us dearly. We live in oxygen mask existence. What am I talking about? Y'all have all been on a plane, and as you're getting ready to take off, the stewardess stands up and gives a set of instructions, and they talk about where the emergency exits are. And then what do they say? Something in the tune of, in a case of a loss of cabin pressure, some oxygen mask will fall out of the ceiling. If you're traveling with a small child, be sure and do what? Put your oxygen mask on first, and then assist those who are around you. That's pretty solid advice you can't probably help your kid if you're passed out because you don't have any oxygen so I understand where they're going probably in the context of a plane losing cabin pressure you should follow their advice if that ever happens to any of you don't do what I'm about to say after this all right do what they say follow their instructions but but in our spiritual realm that's remarkably unbiblical We're not called to first take care of ourselves and then take care of others. It's just the opposite. And Jesus here, I think, Jesus here, I think, has given us the reason that that's okay. You see, even those of you who are evil take care of your own. You give your children things that they need. In other words, Jesus says, you're far less than perfect, you're broken, your desires are messed up and misdirected, you struggle with sin, you pursue wrong things, yet you provide for your children. When they ask for food, you would go hungry to give them a bite. You would never provide them with something neutral when they needed nourishment. You certainly wouldn't provide them with something harmful like a serpent. And he isn't talking here about children asking for toys, he's talking about the things that we need food and shelter and security and a a sense of belonging and these things the text tells us these are provided by God just like you wouldn't withhold bread from your child God wouldn't withhold that from you just like you wouldn't give him a rattlesnake when you needed a hug that's not what God is going to do to you so so when you look at others and you know this is how I would want to be treated But then you look at yourself and you think, yeah, but I can't afford that. Man, what if there's not something left over for me? Or or I could treat them that way. That's how I would want to be treated, but they're probably going to turn back and bite me. And then you decide to redirect. When, When that happens, when those thoughts flow into your mind, Jesus says, set them aside. You wouldn't do that to your children, and God's not going to do that to you. You are totally free to treat others like you want to be treated because God's going to take care of your needs. Just like last week, this lesson again is really about our posture towards God. And Jesus is calling us towards a posture of trust. 
trust that he's going to take care of us. When we trust God fully, it relieves our anxiety, but it also frees us to treat people around us like we would want to be treated. We no longer have to live this fractured life where, where we know that we would want to be treated a certain way, but we don't feel like we have the ability or the bandwidth to provide that to those around us, honestly, because we're afraid. Now, so what? <laughs> you know, I struggle sometimes with a tangible application. I feel like I stand up here each week and tell you how to think. And, and, and it's sometimes hard to tell you what to do. And, but the truth is, so much of Christian living is about first getting your thinking right. In fact, that's a lot of what the Sermon on the Mount was about. That's what Jesus was hammering on, is that your heart needs to be in the right place first. And when your heart is in the right place, actions follow. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn to ask yourself this question over and over again as you interact with those in your life. When someone asks for you for something, I want you to ask yourself this, what if I was them? When someone is angry, I want you to ask yourself this, what, what if I was them? When someone is honestly unreasonable, ask yourself this, what if I was them? When someone is harsh and, and hateful, learn to ask yourself this question. Yeah, but what if I was them? When someone's hurting, learn to ask yourself this question. What if I was them? And then, and then when you are tempted to say to yourself, well, this is what I would want, but then you lean into Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. You back up a verse and you remind yourself, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In other words, I'm calling you when you are when you are struggling to answer that question the way that you should, you need to remember that God has promised to take care of you and God has promised to do good for you. And resting in that promise is what gives you the freedom to love the world like you're supposed to love the world. So we can spend our time asking God for the things that we need and then resting in the fact that he's going to provide them. And then we look up and we look out to those around us and we go and we treat them like we would want to be treated and we don't have to be afraid of it. I remember when Brooklyn was maybe three. She might have been four years old. I don't remember all of the story, but she got in trouble for something. I remember that. And I had taken a toy away from her and said, if you're going to act that way, you don't get this. And she looked at me and she said, Dad, are you thinking about how that makes me feel? <laughs> Grateful that you're picking up on a little bit of empathy, but you've kind of missed the point. I said, well, yes, I was, sweetie, and it was intended to make you feel bad because that was a bad choice. Our, our, our days can't be spent trying to keep everyone happy. That's not what this is about. Because people get happiness from pretty broken and unhealthy things. But our days can be spent meeting people's needs. Our days can be spent giving ourselves to others. And while it may seem dangerous, it's not dangerous at all because God said, I've got you. I'll give you the good things that you need. I'll give you those things. Those I will take care of. You go do your thing in that world that needs you. 
As we close, I want to offer an invitation. The truth is, this is a difficult way to live. I think because it just doesn't come natural. We, we struggle with it. It's a, it's a satisfying way to live. It's a better way to live. It's a way to live that is full of hope, but is, is difficult at times. And that's why we need Scripture, and that's why we need one another to press ourselves towards these attitudes. Now, it's likely that there is someone here this morning that has committed to living for Christ, but you're still really struggling to trust him to this degree. It's caused you maybe to struggle with your anxiety, but even more, it's caused you to struggle in your interactions with others. I would encourage you today to let go of these pursuits and turn your life over to God. Together, we can do this. We want to cheer for you. We want to partner with you. We want to study his word and remind ourselves of this truth that we often miss. If you are, if you are in that spot, we would like to begin the process of restoration today. We ask that you would come forward. Maybe you have never lived this way, and you hear me talking, and this sounds scary, and you're unsure. To you, I would say, we would love to study with you. We would love to show you what this life looks like and help you understand that the, this, this truth is rooted in God. And, and through the study of his scripture, I think that you will come to the same understanding of us, that this is the best way to live, to live in Christ. Maybe you've studied and you believe in Jesus, and for some reason you've been delaying a decision to put him on in baptism. And if that's you, I would say... Why delay? We're not promised tomorrow. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.